hello, hello. It is 2 p.m. Eastern time, at least, uh, on a Friday afternoon. That means it is time for another Kick-Ass Career Conversation. I am Kim. I'm you Louise. Louise. Oh, my gosh. I like You were <laughs> silent is what you were. That's not good for the audio only, folks. And we're joined today by... Alan. Alan. That's Alan right. Mueller. Yeah. And we're going to learn more about Alan and his story in just a little bit. But we want to start this week how we start every week. What are we celebrating this week? I'm celebrating. Well, here we are. New year, new revamp, calendar switched over. Uh, IMAX actually celebrating uh, not uh, goal setting um, <laughs> along with everyone else. Um, thank you. Sometimes Sometimes we get wrapped up in kind of like what everybody else is doing or what we should be doing. And I made a very conscious decision this week to just put the brakes on all of that, to take this time to kind of just sit. Uh, not to say I'm not reflecting on 2023 and what it brought me, but I don't know what those goals are yet. So I'm not going to push anything. And I'm just sitting there just kind of being for the moment. Love it. Alan, how about you? Uh, how about me? Yeah. Oh, uh, well, uh, gosh. The thing I'm most grateful for and thankful for right now is my oldest son is home from college. Uh, he goes to college in, in New York, and I live in North Carolina. And that's that's uh, some distance. And um, his college has what's called a January term, which is sort of a mini semester in between fall and spring terms. And he's not taking a January term. So that means we just get extra time with him. And we hung out in our pajamas over the break and watched movies and played cards and all the things. It's been mm. glorious. It's been amazing. Oh, that sounds lovely. Um, I'm going to actually trail off of the cards thing. Um, so I'm a huge, <laughs> excuse me, huge game player. Like I love playing board games of all shapes and sizes. Um, over break, my husband and daughter were reintroduced. My mom is staying with us for a little while. We're reintroduced to double solitaire. And so we actually had uh, quadruple, four quadruple solitaire. We had four of us playing solitaire with each other. If you've never done it and you're a competitive game player, it's, it's, oh my good night moon. It is awesome. <laughs> it sounds it fascinating. Fun. It is. Well, because if you imagine playing solitaire, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We all know solitaire. So you play sure. solitaire. You use shared decks in the middle that you're building up. So when you're putting the ace, two, three, four, that's shared in the middle. So if somebody throws down an ace of hearts and you have a two of hearts, you're going to go plop it on top of theirs and like you're fl and imagine four sets of arms going in there to try and it is so much fun. And so that I am celebrating that, that not only have we, had a really nice break together, but that being able to like good as my husband just posted in the comments over on YouTube, good, aggressive fun. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it, it was good time. So that is definitely what, what I am celebrating this week as well. Alan, I'm going to let the world know about you a little bit about you anyway, just a little sure. bit. All right, here we go. So Dr. Alan Mueller is a passionate advocate for authentic transformation. You're in the right place, Alan. So are we. Awesome. Um, he started Adaptive Challenge Consulting in 2014 to help organizations navigate their greatest challenges through listening and real conversations. 
Alan has worked in finance, sales, higher education, and even hospitality. Through his unique journey of failures and successes, he has gained insight into organizational leadership and development. Alan always brings authenticity and humor with him, whether assisting organizations on their inclusion efforts or helping them evaluate their programs. Now, here's some fun facts. Alan is a former improv comedian, is pretty obsessed with Disney World, and we can see that in like your <laughs> mug and yeah. Um, and is a member of the fifth largest historically black fraternity in the country. And you don't need to adjust your screen. He is white. <laughs> I am a I am a white man. And you I, and are I, a white man. I yeah. Throw, I throw so many people with that that fun fact. <laughs> so I need to and 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 you have a TEDx talk. You know, I mean, just throw yeah. that in for fun at the end too. So. But I need to know. I know, Louise, I'm going to let you ask your question in a second, but I need to know about the fraternity. Yeah, yeah. So um, for, for your listeners who don't know, there are nine historically black fraternities and sororities in the United States. There are more than nine, but there are nine big ones and ca casually called the Divine Nine. And what's interesting is more than 55% of people who join those organizations do so after college, not in college, which is what I was used to. Um, but these historically black organizations are are more akin to sort of like the Rotary Club meets the Freemasons meets, you know, so so more like adult things. And so um, I, I worked at a small, predominantly white university, although now it's sort of bigger. Now it's about 20,000 students. Um, and I was the advisor for several multicultural groups, uh, you know, the largest group of black students on campus at an otherwise very, very white campus. And um, an administrator approached me about starting a chapter of what's called Iota Phi Theta. And I originally imagined he wanted to get in front of my students to start a, start a, an undergraduate chapter. And I said, so do you want some time with my students? He goes, no, no, no. I want you to pledge. And I said, okay, well, first of all, I, I'm a grown and and I've got, you know, a mortgage, a wife, two kids, uh, a few grad degrees. I don't know that I'm going to pledge anything at this point in my life. Um, but then he told me, look, whether you do this or not, I want you to help me with this youth program at the local elementary school to get young boys of color interested in college, whether you do this or not. And I'm like, okay, now you sound like you're really about something. And then the second, the second thing he said really got my inner feminist and womanist excited. And he said, and this is a family decision. So I want to sit down with you and your wife to have this conversation. And I was like, okay, okay. And then it occurred to me that if I stepped out of my comfort zone, I was in my thirties. If I stepped out of my comfort zone a little bit, that maybe the students I advised who, you know, it always took me a solid year to build trust with the students and rightfully so. Um, maybe if they saw me step out of my comfort zone a little bit, it it might mean something to them. And it, it did. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's meant even more to me. It's been such an amazing learning journey for me. Yeah. Sure. I bet. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. 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 So I want to know Alan, a little bit about kind of your career journey and your career path and, and, it sounds a little bit like a crayon scribble on a piece of paper um, with all of the things that you've done in the past. I imagine you stepped out of your comfort zone on more than one occasion. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And and so, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of people buy into the myth that when you're between 16 and 21 years of age that you find your calling, find your passion, <laughs> pursue your passion and that you're gonna do this thing. and that you're gonna maybe go to college and do a major and the major is gonna be directly related to that thing. And most people's lives, none of that's the case. Most people's lives, it's a, it's a much more uh, windy road. And uh, I went to college originally to be a band director, that was my dream. And, uh, but uh, 
after uh, about five years of studying music, I realized I don't want to work in music. I want to. I I wanted to have fun with music, and so uh, it took me seven years to finish college, y'all. Seven years. And I tell people when I do keynotes and stuff, I say, you know, um, that a lot of my friends graduated magna cum laude and summa cum laude. I graduated thank the laude. I had a two. I had a two point one six GPA, Ooh. and it had taken me seven years, right? <laughs> And so my first career after that, naturally, there were a few little mini jobs, but my first sort of career was was finance, because at the end of the day, don't you want the philosophy major with the 2.16 uh, GPA handling your money? Don't, don't you want them in your financial corner, right? Pretty sure they have in the past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I became a, a I was in customer service at a, at a bank that was eventually bought by the Royal Bank of Canada. It was a, a local mid-Atlantic bank called Centura that then RBC bought. And then I worked at a credit union, which is like a nonprofit bank. And I was doing mortgages and consumer lending and all that jazz. Um, and that was sort of one of my more formative things. And um, I don't know how much how much more you want me to go into, but Keep going. yeah. Uh, but then I, I applied for a job at my alma mater and um, and I got to the final round and I thought, you know, I really want to work with universities. That Those seven years for me were ones of huge growth. And, and in particular, the things outside of the classroom, the clubs, the organizations, the music ensembles, those kinds of things kept me anchored in a way that, that was made the difference between me failing out and me persisting just in a much slower way, right? And um, I thought, I wonder if I could give back. I wonder if I could help students with that. So I applied to graduate school to get, uh, for a master's program called College Student Development, which Think of it as like an MBA for college administrators, right? So it's teaching you to be a director of a career center or a director of the residence halls or a director of the multicultural center. Uh, I applied to go to graduate school and they said, no, I got rejected, right? Um, and as it so happened, because I worked at the state employees credit union and our largest client base were professors at this university, somebody remembered that I had treated them kindly. And he called me up and said, I saw you got rejected from my program. I said, well, I met with, with a Dr. Clark. He goes, oh, I'm Dr. Clark's boss. And he goes, look, look, I looked at your transcript. I could tell by year six and seven, you finally figured it out. What if we gave you provisional status? I said, I don't know what provisional status is. He goes, it means you can take some classes. And if you can prove to me you can make a B average or better, we'll accept you into the program. And I took a leap of faith. I quit a job with benefits. My wife and I lived in an 800 square foot home that was sort of rotting out from under us. And um, I took a leap of faith and never looked back got my first ever scholarship in grad school um, and then thought, well, if this is my second chance, maybe I should keep going. So I got an ed specialist degree, uh, which a lot of people don't know what that is, but it's post master's, but not a doctorate. Uh, and then I went on and got a doctorate. And so, you know, I tell people that, you know, if you, if you're, it, I tell college students sometimes, you know, if you fail to test today or fail to test this week, it's okay. You could one day be Dr. Mueller too. I mean, <laughs> insert your name, but yeah, otherwise, <laughs> um, you know, and so when, the, when that, even when my own children have the angst of failing a course, you know, failing a, a test or failing a class, I, I tell them, I'm like, I fa failed almost, almost my whole college career and, you know, just kept going, didn't give up. <laughs> I think that is so important. So it, our daughter's about to turn 14 and she got a not stellar grade on something recently. And it was the first time. And it was really, it's really hard on her because she, she feels like a failure. Right. And I think that, the, that we tend to, to put a lot more credence, a lot more weight on those things. I too took seven years. 
Um, I had 11 majors, right? Wow. Because I I am a multi-passionate human being who couldn't figure out what she wanted to do and honestly really liked being in college, even though I didn't always get great grades. And I didn't always get great grades because I sometimes didn't go to class. It happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I went on to law school and got a 3.89 in my graduating year. Um, I went on to, um, create my own business. I went on to run nonprofit organizations. I've gone like, it doesn't, that doesn't define us. And yet we, we feel particularly, I want to say in our teens and our twenties, we feel like, oh my gosh, this is everything. It, it does feel like that. And, and I have the good privilege to be married to a counselor. And so I've absorbed a lot of this from her, but also I worked in a helping field and, mm-hmm. When, when my youngest was, was thir- 12, 13, 14, and, and would have one of those bumps uh, or feel anxious about something, right? Going, in, going to school in the pandemic was, you know, all, all the different things. And, um, and oftentimes I would say, I would say, so why don't, af- after something had happened that he was anxious about, I would say, if you could write a note to yourself two days ago, what would the note say? What would the note say? And then I'm like, why don't you go ahead and write that note to, because you felt anxious two days ago about this thing that's now passed that now you said wasn't too bad. What would that note say? And so he writes the note and the next time he was anxious, I was like, do you still have that note? Because future you might have something to say about this. And it's hard. And, and this is, you know, my, my master's was in college student development. So developmental psychology, we, your 14 year old is making sense of her world in her way. Exactly. And certain things are as big as they will ever be. But I bet you that if you asked her about things that seemed big when she was seven mm-hmm. that aren't now, that might shake things, go, oh, wait, oh, oh, wait. You know, mixed with the idea, of course, the notion that grades are artificial and that grades do not matter. At, they're fictitious and outside of the education world, they mean nothing. Yeah. I, I have not gotten a grade in a long time. <laughs> and, yeah, 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 right? Well, yeah. Well, lots of us in corporate, in, in corporate, we get graded all the time. They're called performance reviews. Performance reviews. And I and my consulting company, we work with teams that do performance reviews. And one of the things we tell them is, hey, if you are waiting for once a year to air all of your grievances with your staff, stop that. <laughs> how about, how about let's, let's constantly be in the growth mindset. Let's constantly be in the, you know, being honest. Hey, I, I'd like you to do better. But you're right. Corporate has adopted corporate was like, we need something to be anxious about that happens happens on a cyclical basis yeah. that's, that's competitive because yeah. we're all used to grades. So let's yeah. do an annual performance review. And I'm trying to like disrupt that a little bit with a lot of my clients 100%. because it's better to, you know, I used to tell my staff, I'm like, if, if, our, if your performance review comes around and anything is a surprise, I have failed. Yeah. I, I, nothing should be a surprise. It, this should be just commonplace ways we talk about improving our practice every day, every week, and it shouldn't be saved up. But yes, um, Louise, 100%, I'm, I'm with you that corporate has adopted that mm-hmm. as, as well, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's so interesting too, right? So the name of our episode really is about crafting success through failure. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, especially I know for myself and all the other recovering perfectionists out there, is that we shy away from that F word, like it is like poison. And, and we, we take a different path through our, um, 
education, through our, right, but even through our careers is we, we are so stuck on that I can't fail. And the only way to be successful is to not fail. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting because failure can be such a friend. Failure can be such a teacher. And, and also, though, I want to I want to and this is just because who, of who I am. I'm also a man. Right. So that the price of me celebrating failure is a lower price than if I were a woman. Right. I'm also a white guy. The price of me leaning into my failures is a lower price than it would be for someone who's black or someone who's Latine. And I have to know that. I have to acknowledge that. Right. And of course, I just split by gender and race. But spoiler alert, there are black women and Latin women. Right. Yeah. There are people, there are people inter inter intersecting yeah. identities. Yeah. Yeah. And so so, you know, the 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 so I, I was working with a group recently at a, at a historically black college. And you have to acknowledge that. Um, sometimes I do improv with teams and I'm like, the price of being silly is different for different people based on their environment and based on what society expects of you based on your identities, fair or not, that's a reality. And so we have to work on that part of our cultures to get, to get to this, this growth mindset, this idea that failure should be celebrated as a teacher and the perfectionist thing. I'll tell you when I was in my cohort doing my doctorate. Um, I, I, you know, all, so many of the people in there were so competitive. And the question was, well, who's going to defend their dissertation first? Who's going to be first? And there was this, I guess, unspoken fear with some people about who's going to be last. And at some point I said, y'all, y'all, do you know what they call the last person to finish the program? Doctor. So, so, <laughs> so why are you, why are you worried? Right. The last person, like, so, so there is, but Louise, I, I, I understand that the urge I was raised by a German immigrant. So I understand perfectionism and the allure of it. And y'all, any of your listeners, if you're holding on to that, uh, do what do what the, the the snow princess says, let it go, right? Let it go. Um, and it's harder, you know, it's harder for some than others. And I do a lot of Myers-Briggs talk about mm. our different personalities. And if you have a J at the end of your Myers-Briggs, that's a, that's a process that takes some therapy, right? If you have a P at the end of your Myers-Briggs, you might have just heard it on the podcast and be like, let it go. Heck yeah, I'm going to let it go starting <laughs> right? today. Of course, if you have a, right, right. You, you might not have been a perfectionist in the first place, but um, but yeah, and I'm, I'm with you on that. That, that um, yeah, that imperfection and failures can teach us so much. And I have a fun failure I want to tell you all about when there's time, but yeah. Okay. So I'm interested also in the, so we talked about the F word a little bit, but the S word success is also, it, it can be equally as um, daunting and, yeah. and, and like provoke cold sweat. Yeah. I know a lot of my clients show up and they're like, I'm more afraid of success than I am of failure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around it because I, I've heard that a long time. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and to me, um, I think there's just this wonder. I, I had a colleague who worked at, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which is one of the top state institutions in the U.S. And he had like just defended his dissertation at some university in Philadelphia. He was the director of the career center there. He, as, as he put it, he reached the pinnacle of what it thought to be his, to be his career, to be in his career. And he stood there on the, on the proverbial mountaintop and looked out and thought, this isn't what I wanted. Mm -hmm. This isn't what I wanted. So he gave it all up and now he works in real estate and plays in a, uh, like a blues band, like, you know, and, and, and he's living his life and he got married late in life. And, um, there is this, uh, we have, we have pictures in our mind of what success looks like. And then actual success is different. 
Um, I y'all mentioned I'm a Disney World fan. I'm also a part time. I do some travel agent stuff, and sometimes I have clients who are approaching me who are are sort of grumpy as they're planning, and I feel like saying to them, "If you're grumpy now, you're going to take that with you." Like in other words, you know. But if you're happy now, if you're excited now, you're going to take that with you too. And so um, the bottom line is success in these ways that the world talks about success. You know, the the high salary, the you know profile of this, that, and the other. Um, it, those are those are good. They're neat, good goals. But at the end of the day, if you reach that mountain, you have what you brought with you. And so if if what you brought with you is going to comfort you and be good then yay, you're gonna, that success is going to be welcomed as a friend. And if what you brought with you was anxiety and fear and all those things, you're going to be standing on the mountaintop going, I still have those things with me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah because I mean, we, do, we do define success on our own terms, or we all have an opportunity to define success on our own terms, and yet societally, culturally, right? And, we're, yeah. and we talk, all, there's a whole lot of privilege in that as well. Yeah. Um, and that idea of what success is changes, not just when we open ourselves to an understanding that we get to define it for ourselves, but it changes as we go through our life, as we have experiences, right? When I became a mother at age 40, it was very, I, like my life changed yep. what became successful for me. Yep. yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a. Paradigm shift, they call it, right? Mm -hmm. The first exactly. time I held, I held my first child there in the hospital. It, it's a paradigm shift, and 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 I want to say that, like for me, I, when I talk to groups, I, I want to be aware that you know not everybody is on the parent journey, um, sure. but the, but the parent journey is transcendent, and but also the caring, the being a caretaker for others, because sometimes it's a baby, sometimes it's a toddler, sometimes it's a teenager, sometimes it's an elder that you're taking care of, sometimes it's a fur baby, but but what it what those things have in common is that say you work a full day and then you come home, somebody still has needs that aren't on a schedule that didn't make a Google calendar invite for you. And that that's part of the shift that when a baby cries, it needs help now, not you don't get to schedule it. Right. Or, or, and so I, I'm, I'm with you that it can be a, a transformative experience to, I mean, for me, it, having my first child, it, it changed everything. Um, and it changed what what success meant, but then also too, it also added fuel to some of the societal things too, right? Yep. In other words, when I started my entrepreneurship journey, I was in this neat community of people who had been in student affairs, and I asked the group, I'm like, how many of you transitioned from this steady job at a university to being a full time entrepreneur after what I called robust commitments? So I'm you know I'm like mortgage, children, mm -hmm. spouse, you fill in you fill in the gaps, whatever that is. And, and I heard a lot of crickets. Many of the entrepreneurs in that space weren't at that point in their life where they had already signed a mortgage, already found a partner, already had a child. And so their calculation of their risk was a little different, right? And I was asking, I was looking for someone out there like me who was like, oh, okay, so you've got a, a, a about to be teenager and a teenager and one of them's going to go to college in two years and, and you have a mortgage and, and a, you know, you can't like... And those things have to be paid even as you're establishing your business. And, and so those things came in too, right? As I'm, you know, the, the, the little devil and the angel on my shoulder, right? As I'm trying to like craft my own version of what success means, the societal coding doubles down. It's like, but dude, but dude, what if you can't pay the mortgage? <laughs> but, but, but hey man, hey man, what if you fail? And then, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I think too, like you, Ellen, you mentioned that word risk, right? And I think we, our aversion to risk um, can sometimes play into our aversion to failure or our aversion to success. And yeah, yeah right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think uh, I, I had a relative who on their kitchen fridge growing up said, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? Um, and I think that's interesting. But I think another way of thinking about it is every time I have one of those negative thoughts about something failing, then I think to myself, well, what if the entire, what if the exact opposite happened? Mm -hmm. What would happen if the exact opposite happened? Um, and uh, two of the members of my affiliate of my consulting group, two of my affiliates, they're always talking about manifesting. And and I, I got a book recently because I, I don't I don't I, I want to be that person, and, and I don't quite understand yet what manifesting means. Come but hang I, out with me. I'll teach you. Okay. 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 But, <laughs> but what, but what I do know is that like, like I have this really interesting truck called a Rivian. It's very, it's not very common. It's like an electric pickup truck. And I noticed that when I was interested in getting one, suddenly I was more attuned to seeing them on the road, right? The law of attraction kind of thing. And so I understand some of the ingredients to manifestation, but I can't, I don't have the recipe yet. Right. And so, um, so yeah, it's it's one of those things that I admire people who are like, well, I'm going to manifest this, and I'm like, really? Okay, okay, cool. How do you do that? <laughs> right? <laughs> well, what you don't do is you don't just think happy thoughts and sit on your couch. That doesn't right. manifest. <laughs> right. That unless, does not. unless you're a wizard, I guess maybe, but otherwise, for which would be really really cool. I would be okay with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if but I for, if I suddenly learn that that I truly have witchy craft, like awesome. yeah. Yeah, I'm not um, a witch, so I can't I can't quite pull that off. Yeah, you just got to keep practicing. Um, no, I mean it, it. It is fun because <laughs> when we think again of this idea of success and failure, what what we pay attention to, we attract. Right. Yeah. That's why you yeah. were seeing all of the trucks on the road because yep. you were paying attention to it. They were always there. Yep. You just didn't you didn't see them before. Yep. And yep. so what we pay attention to, we attract. So if we are paying attention to this fear of failure. Right. Those limiting beliefs, which yeah. is language that we would all use in our world, yeah. the limiting beliefs then we're going to attract that. Yeah. We tend to attract more of that because we're focused on it. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if we're focused on the whatever we're defining for success, we're going to attract more of that. Yeah. And that honestly is the, the foundation of when people talk about manifestation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and my colleague, like explained it to me in pretty similar terms. And um, for me, for me, and I, and I don't want to have therapy with y'all right now, but for me, there's some, there's some layers, you know, and, yeah. and, par and part of it is like, is like manifesting wealth, but also I'm part of a, like a spiritual tradition where it's like, well, yeah, but, but is earthly wealth the thing I should really be thinking about? And then there's like the, yeah, and I want to manifest success. And then there's this social justice part of me that's like, yeah, but like you're a white guy and you've got it good, you know, so there, so you know, I'm not going to have therapy with y'all right now, but the, you know, the I I have some I think I have some pre work to do before I can manifest not on my couch. Like I think I think I have a little pre work to do, um, but I got a book recently that I'm curious about that's about this, and so I'm you know. What's the book? I'm, I'm it's curious. called Project Three Sixty Nine. Um, oh, I've not heard of that one. I, I haven't either, but I oh. I, I know it. It's yeah, three sixteen. So three six nine. Yep. Okay. Yeah, Project three six nine. Yeah. yeah um, and I know that Nikola Tesla. I know that Nikola Tesla before he passed said something about if humanity knew the power of the number three six nine, we would be shocked 
And I also learned, this is so random, but this is like, the, this is about as much conspiracy theorist as I get. When I took statistics at grad school, um, they're like, well, to have a representative sample of a hundred people, you need this many people to respond to your survey. Okay, cool. And for a thousand people, it's this. And, for, and then there's some point, once you get to like 10,000 people or more, where the number is just 369 for the rest of the rest of the time. And I'm like, that seems weird because it means like if I had a million people I'm trying to survey and if I get 369 of them truly randomly, I can count on that data. And that's mm -hmm. fascinating. That's fascinating that if it's a hundred people, you need 20. If it's a thousand people, you need 250, whatever. A percentage changes. A percentage. So and yeah. then suddenly it's 369. It's like, we stop. We're stopping, right? We can, we can statistically extrapolate with 369 people whether it's 10,000 interviewees or a million. And I'm like, that is, that's mind blowing. So I learned that in grad school, kept it in my brain, saw a documentary about Nikola Tesla that, and then I saw an ad about, uh, you know, about manifesting in this book. And I was like, okay, wait a second. Maybe, maybe I should pay attention. See what you pay attention to, you attract. Uh, it's, it's, it's true. <laughs> it's true. And um, uh, I'll tell you that there, there've been many twists and turns that, that to me suggest a cosmic winking at me. Um, in my career um, that have been mind-blowing, mind-blowing. In, in, one, in one instance, uh, I, w I got laid off. I was an assistant academic dean at a college, and I got laid off. But 17 days to the day before I got laid off, this little fledgling Etsy shop that I had started got featured on this unofficial blog that had 1.7 million followers. <laughs> And so I sold in those 17 days about four paychecks worth of my stuff from this little itty bitty side project. And if that's not the universe winking, and then I sat down in front of my boss and they said, we're eliminating your position. Uh, you have to have your stuff out by tomorrow. And I'm like, wait, what? But the universe had already winked. It was like, dude, dude, this is, you, you, you need this. It's going to hurt. You need this. But, um, and that's just one example. There have been many other times that are so random, but so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we do need failure. We, we do need it in our lives in order to recalibrate, to make sure we're going in the right direction, to figure out what to leave behind, to know what to carry forward. If we're not in the moment of this F word, we put insert word here, right? Yeah. Like it really isn't though. It, it isn't a failure. I, I, I talked to so many people, so many high, high potential folks in corporate, right? That are like, they have just like aced it every single, they are like getting 110% on every exam corporate can throw at them, right? They are seen as fantastic employees. They have, they have been successful over and over and over again in all kinds of ways. And then they get to a point in their careers where it's like, uh, oh, uh, I can't try something new. I'm going to fail. Um, or I can, I don't know what to do next. Yeah. Right. And it's because they have never experienced that yeah. as an opportunity to learn something and to go in a way where they are more in control of what direction they pick. It's the AYSO theory of, uh, corporate AYSO being the, sorry, uh, I'm, American I'm youth, taking notes. American youth <laughs> soccer association who is, um, so my, my, in my trial marriage, um, before my real one, um, in my trial marriage, his daughter was on youth soccer, uh, leagues. 
at the end of every season, everybody gets a ribbon. Nobody gets a trophy. Everybody gets a ribbon. And same color ribbon, everything. Everybody, it's, everybody is level. And I'm like, that's some BS. And I here, like, I want everybody to feel good about their contribution. Yeah. Even if they were the ones tripping over their feet every time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because they tried and they did their best. And I want to celebrate that 100%. Oh my and gosh. the kid that made 90% of the goals absolutely should be celebrated for making 90% of the goals. Yep. So, but, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I wanted to, uh, some a few things Louise said hit me in a certain way. And then, uh, and then Kim, something that you just said. Mm -hmm. So I want to, I want to share a few ideas Please. because um, the, the, um, my, my grandmother who was German and five foot negative two and a half, um, every once in a while when she was in her in her 90s and she survived two world wars she survived immigrating to the u.s like you know um, was doing push-ups into her 90s like you know it's amazing and um sometimes she would call us the family and she would say she would say in her very german accent she was like, I, I fell but i fell good and so fell good was like i fell but I, but it was it was okay right and so the idea of failing forward and failing into something uh when I got laid off at that college, my job, and this is, you're going to hear the layers of the irony here. My job was I, I directed the career center. My job was to help people get jobs, mm -hmm. help them forward their career, network, all these things. Um, I also had just, I had been volunteering at a nonprofit in our community um, that helps out of work adults. It was called Step Up. And our, and you know, a lot of career counselors and career coaches from the area would help out there. And I'd helped out and they'd been bugging me to be on their board. And I finally acquiesced to be on their board. They said, well, we're looking to, you know, we, we want diversity. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm white, but they're like, well, we want youth. And I'm like, I'm not that young. And, uh, you know, because um, to me, boards are for old rich people. I, I don't know. Right. And so, but I joined the board and the, the new board member orientation at a nonprofit whose mission it is to help out of work adults was 11 days after I got laid off. And so Louise, something that you said about, the fa that failure is sometimes about a correction. It's about a reevaluation mm -hmm. to me, to me, sometimes it's also about staying humble. Right. Um, I mean, I had reached quote unquote mm -hmm. success from what paper, how it would be described on paper. Um, but I think that these failures, one of the things that they do is they build empathy. And, you know, when it, when, you know, I do a lot of work with leadership and, and leaders and, and sort of ideas of what, what we expect of leaders, I gotta tell you, 10, 10 years ago, if you asked corporate folks what they wanted in leaders, the word empathy wasn't there. And now it's like number three, right? Of the, of the 30 different aspects of, of, of um, two, two have come out of nowhere in the last 10 years, which are inclusion and empathy, right? And so each time we fail, it, I think it increases our capacity for empathy for others, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's huge, that's huge. Um, and then the thing about the ribbons and the participation, the participation trophies, uh, I'll tell you that, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a lot of baby boomers out there who, who mm -hmm. sang the song about the millennials all getting participation trophies. And as someone who has some background in psychology, I think one thing that happened is we all oversimplified something really poorly in the nineties. Yep. And that is that everyone is special, but also no one's special. <laughs> right. And mm -hmm. so that, that, um, Sesame Street in the 70s was this was this phenomenon of reminding children and Mr. Rogers looking into the camera saying, don't forget you're special. And that's true that each of us is this unique, special creation that's amazing. And, and 
in soccer matches, somebody does win mm-hmm. and, and they get to be more special on that day. Mm-hmm. And that's okay too. Mm-hmm. And so the, we oversimplified it to everyone's special. And I'm, because there was like, none of y'all are special, rub some dirt in it. Right. 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 And, and then it was like, no, but everyone's special and unique. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, but both, but both, both my friends. Both. Both. Yeah. yeah. And so it, it's, and I sat around so many meetings with people just trashing the millennials. And I was like, Bob, just stop. Just stop. It, yeah. yeah. Just that's not getting us anywhere. <laughs> no, no. And I agree. Right. It's like, it's, it, it what's, it's what we do as humans. Mm-hmm. Like we see something over here and we are like, Oh, the pendulum swung that too far this way. And we have to correct it. And we're like, Oh shit, we did it all this way now. Yeah. Yep. Right. It's, it's learning how to, it's lear- it's learning how to screw up. Yeah, yeah, it's it is it is, and, and to just to do, just to accept it, to accept that you're yeah. going to screw up. Um, I do a lot of work in like sort of anti-racism spaces and and um, it, you know uh, equity, inclusion, diversity effort spaces. And sometimes people ask me, they're like, "Well, aren't you worried about saying the wrong thing sometimes?" And I'm like, "Well, I used to be." But now I think it's more important for me to be in the conversation and just be okay with the fact that I'm going to mess up. Yep. But w- but when I mess up, I'm going to I'm going to learn. Right. Um, a lot a lot of people down on this side of the border, down in the U.S., talk about cancel culture and things like that. And I'm like, look, look, when people make mistakes, rarely are celebrities canceled for making a simple mistake. Usually, it's they were told about the mistake and they chose not to learn and do better. There's so many examples of people who made a mistake, were told about that. Oh, oh, that's insensitive culturally. Okay, I'm going to change it, and and that, and they go on about their lives, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's understanding that failure is going to happen, and to use each time to learn to do better next time. And as long as you get in that pattern, you know it doesn't have to be scary. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. that recalibration, right? That it both is. And Louise were talking about. It's it is allowing. Part of being human is making mistakes. Part of being human is falling down. It, it's it's what happens from our tiniest selves to the end of days. Yep. Like yep. that's we we can count on. We're born. We're gonna make mistakes and we're gonna die. Yep. Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so and so if we can learn from them, if we can just embrace that it's gonna happen, and sure. And again, I'm married to a counselor. So do honor your feelings, my friends, right? So when you make a mistake and it feels bad, honor it and then go, okay, well, so then what's next, right? So what, so then what happens tomorrow? What, like when I got laid off and I, sorry, I keep coming back to this, but it's just, it's, it's a fruitful experience. Um, uh, probably three years prior, I had done a research trip where I wanted to visit every single university in my state. And in my state, uh, North Carolina, is a state of about 10 million people. We have 52 four-year colleges and universities. It's a lot for a state our size. And I visited 51 of them. And I interviewed like the dean of students or some vice presidents. And the day after I got laid off, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to take one whole day to be sad. One whole day. I'm going to be, I'm going to be so sad. And then the next day, I'm going to start getting back onto things, right? And I'm sitting there on day two after I had my full sad day. And I'm like, how do I start? I ran a career center. I, I work with a nonprofit that helps out-of-work adults. How do I, I don't know where, and I told my wife, I'm like, I don't know where to start. And she looked at me, she goes, aren't you friends with 50 deans of students at colleges and universities across the state? And I was like, oh, yes, maybe I'll talk to some of them. 
And so uh, it's a matter of, I mean, I, I think that honoring your feelings is good, but then also just realizing that every mistake is a teacher. Every failure is a teacher. Yeah. yeah. So the only thing in there that I would say is give yourself as much time as you need. One yes. day is yes. like, if you know yourself well enough to know that one day is enough, that's okay. But give yourself as much time as you need to feel all the feelings that you need to feel because those are real and that's the other part of being human, right? Yep. All right. Yep. Okay, there's four things we feel. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And and for, for me, and, and I, I appreciate you adding that because, um, you know, for me, a day was what I was willing to give myself. Did I really need more? Yes, I, I did need more. Um, but some of that I had to do in motion, right? So, so I gave myself a day to do, to grieve and to be sad, not in motion. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I was like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm going to reconnect with my, my therapist and I'm going to spend some more time doing some other intentional things. But that second, for me, at least for my journey, I, I had to do some of that stuff in motion because the mortgage was still out there. Right. So, um, but yeah, I appreciate you adding that because, uh, and this is probably the German, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the German, German Lutheran thing that I was raised with, with, you know, you know, if you have feelings at all, have them for 30 minutes by yourself later, you know, you know? so I, I felt guilty about having a whole day. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and you know, we all bring our own story into, right, into these moments. And we all, we have this, this baggage, this luggage, these experiences that, that shape and form how we're going to handle these situations. Yeah. And to, to really, right, you, you talked about empathy, but also really like compassion too, right? And yeah. turning that in on ourselves and really practicing that self-compassion to say, right, like it's not just, we're not just talking about getting failure right. <laughs> we're talking about, right, like being really, really open and vulnerable um, and saying like, it it really can suck sometimes um, yeah. to fail. And it's, it's okay that we just aren't immediately picking ourselves up and dusting ourselves off. Sometimes we've got to lay in the dust for a little while, yes. um, but turning that light on ourselves and really, really starting to practice self-compassion. Yeah. Yeah. One, one time in count and I, and I really appreciate that. Um, one time in counseling, I did an activity called the empty chair. I don't know mm -hmm. if any of your listeners may have uh, familiarity with that, but the, the essential framework of it is that I, I 29 year old Alan, I think at the time got to sit across from five year old Alan and have a conversation and the being there for myself in a way or being there for that part of myself was, it was a powerful thing. And so, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes, um, you know, I've heard the phrase toxic positivity where people are like, you know, um, you know, give everybody grace, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, yes, yes. And you got to give yourself some grace. You got to, mm -hmm. you got to. Yeah. Oh, grace is a huge thing that we forget that we, we have, but yes, yeah, spiritual bypassing and toxic passes, toxic positive. Look, I don't even want to say it. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's rampant. Yeah. particularly in where we're all practicing. And so allowing people to have their full human experience um, on both failure and success. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's important. I think, and that was actually why I brought up the AYSO thing was the, the is by flattening everything, we stop allowing people to have the fullness of our experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, um, we did, my wife and I early on adopted a, 
a parenting strategy called love and logic, which is amazing. Um, and it, the, one of the ideas is that each child is having their own experience, right? We, and and it, it repositions parents as not fixers of things, but coaches and advisors. Um, we were, we were of the mindset pretty early on. We're like, we're not raising children. We're raising future adults. And, and, you know, they're going to have a full experience and, you know, it's, we're along for the ride for a while. Um, and so like letting have that robust, letting, the, you know, sometimes they're going to feel sad. And in the love and logic framework, it's like, let them feel sad, hold them, right? Comfort them. And then later, whatever they were sad about, you can talk about how and coach them on their way through it. Um, but it's an amazingly powerful um, uh, system that when I was skeptical when my wife introduced me to it and, uh, you know, almost 20 years later, I'm very thankful we went down that path because it, it was, it was pretty amazing, but it does honor the feelings of children. And it doesn't, so many parents, you know, uh, I've seen so many parents, a kid breaks a toy and they yell at them for breaking the toy. I'm like, dear parent, the, the child's already said, they already understand the consequence of a broken toy. You don't have to give them a 20 minute speech about, I told you this and this, this. no, hold them. Do you remember what it was like to break a toy? Like just comfort them, right? You know, and then later, be like, okay, well, that toy is probably not going to be as much fun to play with. What are the other, to you know, later go into the logic where you are not, so many parents, if their kid cries past 10 minutes, they're just going to go buy a new toy. Mm -hmm. And and the reality is that doesn't teach your kid the thing the kid needs to know, right? Because there's no magic toy fixing fairy in my life, right? Like I don't, I don't have, if my car breaks, I don't, I, nobody just magically fixes it for me, right? Um, and so it, it teaches kids this, this number one, that you love them and care about them and you're there for them. But number two, that you're there for them, for them to solve their own problems. And you're their coach, you're their advisor, you're their resource, but, but they're going to be in a lifetime where they solve their own problems, right? Where they, you know, those and they, those that they surround themselves with, you know? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I just looked at the time and that 45 minutes went fast. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So I would love to know what are our takeaways? What are those golden nuggets that we are taking with us, putting in our pockets or um, keeping in our hearts? Oh my gosh. Well, from this conversation, I'm just thankful that y'all are having this conversation. It's, it's a great conversation. And, and I think that one of the things that I would just reiterate is that, you know, as, as your listeners are listening, you know, that, um, that we build up so many things in our mind about what others expect of us. And I think that a lot of that is a, is a construction. I'm gonna tell you a real quick anecdote. Um, I, I used to do this activity called a string maze where students would follow a string maze blindfolded and they would try to reach the end. And I would tell them three things over and over. There's an end. When you get there, you'll know it. If you need help, raise your hand. That's all they were told. There's an end. If you get there, you'll know it. If you need help, raise your hand. They keep going, they keep going. Get, keep Finally, a student will raise their hand, say, I need help. And I go whisper to them, Take off your blindfold. Congratulations, you've reached the end. Mm -hmm. Asking for help is that moment. But when we would process it later, everybody, every time I did this, would say, I didn't want to be the person to ask for help because I think people would think I was stupid or people would think I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm like, oh, I understand that feeling. Is that how you feel about others when they ask for help? Well, of course not. Of course not. Aha, we found a gap. We found a gap. So I would just say that your listeners, that gap of everyone else has got it together but me. Everyone else's life is is a put together thing, but mine. Stop it. 
my, my life, if y'all could see my life behind the scenes, it is a mess and a half, y'all. It is a mess and a half. I'm Dr. Alan Mueller. I have a successful consulting company, a successful Etsy shop, a wife, two kids. I live in a nice neighborhood. I have a nice truck. And my life is a mess behind the scenes, y'all. It just is. I, if I, I, yeah. And so, so embrace the mess. Um, and then, too, the thing that we talked about about failure, I know that failure is harder to deal with based on who we are and our identities, right? And so, so I, you know, I bu- build grace for each other and yourself in, in leaning into some failure when it can be a good teacher. Yeah, that's, that's one of my big, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, our Alan, I so appreciate you really sharing your journey and your story, especially around being laid off, right? Especially around, right? Like what that felt like and how do we navigate through some of these obstacles and just being really uh, self-aware and, and, and sharing that, that story over and over again, um, I think is really important because we do get stuck sometimes in feeling like we're a failure when really so many things are outside of our control, um, especially in our careers. Um, and really, I, I think my nugget is, is that um, let's just honor our journey and where we are on our journey, uh, period. Um, it's our journey. It doesn't look like anyone else's journey. And when you're ready to pick yourself up and dust yourself off or move forward or stop and rest or whatever it it is that you need, um, just honor it. Um, and, and things will work out. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Thank you, Louise. I want to say, Alan, first of all, by sharing that, um, right on the surface, there's all the success and I'm right using air quotes success. There's all the success and behind the curtain, it's a hot mess. I would like to officially give you your participation ribbon. Welcome. (laughs) You're a human being. Thank you. Thank you. I feel so human. Okay, good. (laughs) Uh, No, in all genuineness, thank you for sharing your stories with us today. Um, I particularly, um, I am, uh, really appreciative of you, of you owning your white maleness. Like that's huge because that's right. I, I, as a white woman, owning my white womanness is sometimes really challenging. And to speak into the fact that it's like own it, step into those spaces that could likely be very uncomfortable, make mistakes so you can continue to evolve and grow and develop as a human. And then guess what? You get to go from the participation um, ribbon up to the trophy. Like that's excellent. Fantastic. So, and that's not giving you kudos. That's like humanity kudos. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, we, we have to, the last the thing I'll say about that is I, I just, and I, and I grew up in the South in the United States, which is, has layers. And I got exhausted by black people constantly being called on to teach white people about racism yeah. or the trans community being constantly called on to teach cisgendered people about transphobia or the gay community being asked, tell us about homophobia. Yeah. My people, and I can check all the boxes, my people invented all of those things. My people invented racism and transphobia and homophobia and all the things. And so shouldn't we be active in the uninventing, right? I mean, I think on paper, we all, on, on paper, we all want that, but can we get active in that? Can we roll up our sleeves and try to make a difference? And so, so yeah, we've got to, and we have to start with cultural humility, right? The funny, like, what are some of the funniest things about being a white person? I got to tell you I, on social media, and this is my parting thought. I, I put um, on social media that I'm, I'm white but I'm not let my dog lick my mouth white. And so, so it, it outside of the white community, 
I think I think that that practice is seen as a uniquely white thing, and I got to start laughing at my culture because otherwise, um, I'm not going to get anywhere. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. Active in, you said it active in uninventing. Active in uninventing. I love that. Yeah. That is yeah. my yeah. golden nugget. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. We've got, we've got to be. And if, and if your listeners are curious on TEDx, I have a TEDx um, that's, that's about each of our own privilege and sort of what is it, what would it be like to measure that? Right. I don't, I don't count the time that I have to wait to go to the bathroom because as a man, I have to wait to go to the bathroom. My wife has been waiting for 40 plus years to go to the bathroom at every event we go to. And so I actually got out a calculator one day and thought, how many public events do I go to? How many minutes have I not had to, to wait to go in the line in the bathroom? And could I use those minutes to focus on, focus on women's issues? Could I use those moments, right? I have 720 hours of not waiting in the bathroom in my lifetime. What can I do with those 720 hours, you know? Yeah. That's powerful, that is powerful. Alan, where can people find you out in the world if they want to connect and continue this conversation? Out in the world, you can find me at AdaptiveChallengeConsulting.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, um, Alan Mueller, A-L-A-N, last name Mueller, M as in Mary, U-E-L-L-E-R, LinkedIn. Um, and my Etsy shop, if people are curious, is called Happy Place Designs. Um, but Adaptive Challenge Consulting is where my team and I do the substantial work of working with teams and organizations. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, and everyone uh, listening, thanks so much for dropping by. If you want to continue the conversation, you certainly can. Uh, we are live not only here every week on LinkedIn and YouTube, Facebook, I don't know, Kim, wherever else you put us. Uh, I only half pay attention to those things, uh, but I do pay attention to our website. You can find us on your kickasscareer.com. Uh, please check us out. You'll see all kinds of events that we have coming up. In fact, next week we are um, launching another uh, mini class all around micro meetings and how to get some of your time back. Um, because as Ellen said, like we'll be surprised, right, at how much time kind of slips away. Uh, from us. So thank you so much. And then Gigi is next week. Please join us as she is our guest. And we talk about being a lifelong learner. Um, thank you so much, uh, everyone. Um, please check us out. Uh, we have some great news uh, as well about our kick-ass career community uh, and our collective. Uh, and you'll find that on our website. Thank you, Louise, for giving all the details. That was awesome. Did, did I do that? You did. You did a great job. I've been practicing. <laughs> Look at fireworks even. <laughs> Alan was prepared. <laughs> when you love Disney, you always have the fireworks ready. Love I don't know where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, thank you so much for making time for stopping by for this really wonderful conversation. Um, I know that I will be in touch to continue the conversation as well. So thank, thank you. you. And thank, thank you, you all both for so listening. much. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now. Bye.